Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. G'day, how are you? How are you? You just got off a plane. I don't know, I prison. feel a little bit fatigued. I even feel more <laughs> fatigued when I look at the number of cases this week. <laughs> yeah, that was your idea. <laughs> we had three weeks where there's no bloody cases and all of a sudden yeah. there's an avalanche of cases. They love doing that, right? They just do. Yeah. everything. <laughs> well, look, let's jump in and have a look at what is exciting, though, because what is exciting is there's a new case on lying at work where somebody wasn't terminated in New South Wales Industrial Relations Commission, mm-hmm. which is Roman Griffiths Council, I think that's the name. I'm, yeah. I'm making this up as I go. Yes, Roman Griffiths City Very Council. good. There we are. Look, we're good to see it. Yeah. It's a case where a guy lied. He didn't lie that he, his licence was suspended but lied around the conditions, hid it for a while. And for how long it had been suspended. Yeah, but yeah. didn't go to the nature of his job. He wasn't a truck driver, for instance. I think he was a he was a team leader yeah. for tra- traffic facilities. So yeah. it, was, it was related, but it was the fact that he admitted it had been suspended, but he just said for a shorter period. That's right. And he doubled down on the line, kept lying. Isn't that, isn't that always a risk? But I, I think the thing that comes out of this, this is a long-standing employee with a really good track record. 24 years. Yeah, he told a couple of fibs, but it really didn't go to the heart of his employment relationship. And when we juxtapose that, say, with Woods and Jetstar, you see a very different story of a supervisor who has bagged a co-employee who's misbehaved but condoned the behaviour all the way throughout it, but is engaged in very serious misconduct himself, including untruthfulness. I think the other important thing about this case is during the show cause meeting, he actually presented heaps of medical evidence that he'd been had a cancer diagnosis and that stress and the disorder that came from it actually affected his decision-making and they said, we're not going to consider yeah, this it's not go, connected. This is going, now, is this Rome we're talking about? Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, We are Rome because they failed to investigate why it's fibs. Yeah, and they just ignored it. Yeah, and you can't. Even though they had the evidence. Let's go back to Woods because that's a much more fun case. Yeah, that's the next case. Yeah. <laughs> it's not clear. You keep jumping everywhere. Well, tell us, tell us about Woods. Come on. So this is a guy who was a team leader and basically they started investigating him because he just 10 different allegations of awful things like poor language and through investigating they found out that there were a whole raft of different allegations that he hadn't done. Like he was aware of sexual harassment allegations and failed to investigate and they eventually terminated him for all these reasons and he said, I don't understand because you only put these allegations to me. All of these other ones popped up so you can't fire me for that, which yeah. makes no sense. Can I say, this is one of the difficulties with a complex investigation, that it becomes a bit of a rolling thing and you've got to come back and put it to people and give them an opportunity to respond. But it's also interesting that allegations will arise against other people who've committed misconduct and in this case someone he supervised who repeatedly did misconduct and did nothing about it, but then said, hey, there's a disparity in the way you treat me. You sack him, but you don't sack them. And, of course, as Nina and I will tell you, the doctrine of condemnation is not a pretty thing. Yep. You allow someone to do something wrong for a long period of time. You can't then go around and punish a person for something you've committed. And that's sort of where the bench came from. So the interesting part about Woods is this. Serial misconduct that evolves through an investigation is still able to be put to a person if you use the right process. Behaviour that's been condoned, even investigated and found to be true, is difficult to terminate or seriously discipline because as an organisation you are taken to have waived your entitlement to terminate. So this is a really interesting case and it's quite different than when we looked at Rome where a person tells a lie, had a reason for doing it, you failed to investigate why he did it, it didn't go to the heart of it. 
the behaviour of Woods went to the very heart of his role as a supervisor. Yeah. So the disgusting things he said, the terrible things he didn't do, all those things were his role as a supervisor. It went to the heart of it, and that's why the termination was valid, okay? I think they found six different valid reasons to terminate. Yeah. And I could have found about another ten without trying. Let's jump on to Carl. So this one is not that unique. I think it's pretty common, but it's a good reminder of why it's important to do the correct process. So it was a really difficult employee. She was a team leader. She Can I just say when you read this, although it doesn't say the word difficult employee, it jumps off, yeah, the, it jumps yeah, off the page. Yeah, it? it's very clear. There's so many different factors at play yeah. in the manner in which they're behaving. Yeah. As an employer, you'd feel lost with it. I would. Yeah. So she was a team leader who wasn't performing her duties. So they put her on a performance improvement plan and as a result of the plan, she developed a major depressive disorder and filed a workers' comp claim and it was rejected at every opportunity all the way. Three three opportunities, all rejected. Yeah, and they all agreed that it was reasonable management action because her biggest argument was that, look, it's unfair to put me on a performance improvement plan for not failing to do my duties because the lack of resourcing in the company means that I have to always cover the reception duties, which means I can't do my own duties. And then when the court picked that apart, they found it was her own decision to do that. She had the ability to delegate those duties to other people. She also was offered support in managing those duties so that she could switch around and do more of her own duties and she refused their assistance. Can I just say this is a very common complaint we see it come up time and again where someone fails in their performance. So you look at 100% of their work and you say, all right, we're going to drop you back to 50% of your work Mm. and we're going to make sure that you're competent in that. And then the argument for workers' compensation is you don't let me do my job. Yeah. But the performance improvement plan is based on a generous view of let's get the foundations right, let's rebuild the confidence, let's do all the right things. So what's sat into this, what the heart of this case is about is a generous employer who sized down the work she could do to be satisfied, she could do it safely, gave resources, were kind. Kept supporting her every opportunity. And she brought a claim, and this was a claim in Queensland where it's not easy, okay? But at every level, including the arbitrative level, they said, no, no, look, this is somebody who has been provided with the most amazing support and fairness all the way. So fairness in what was being done and fairness in the manner in which it was done, which is reasonable management action, which is we're going to talk about a case called Murad a little bit later. I just want you to understand how far this concept goes and we'll talk about it. But I think it's probably time to talk about genuine bargaining issues that are coming up. There's been, President Hatcher has now released a series of draft principles on when do we know there has been a genuine bargain. Now, let's talk about the ones we know because they live in statute at the moment. They're ones like you've sent off the nurse so people have a, know they have a right of representation. You go through a negotiation which is representative of the entire group of people there, not an individual group. And let employees know of their rights to have bargaining representatives. That's right. You then go through and disclose as you go through the nature of the bargain, which is to be agreed, you explain it, you explain the impact upon the employees, yep. give them a proper opportunity to vote. Yep. Adam Hatcher doesn't move far away. No, it's, it's, it's almost like a, a reiteration reiter- yeah. of what the principles are. You'd be surprised to learn the ACTU says that, look, there must be a greater role for unions and they are potential representatives and should always be involved. And I think everyone agrees that's bullshit and that's not going to happen. Yeah, so they don't just say contact the union that is involved. They say if you know of someone who 
union that could cover them, they should be contacted. Yeah, and can you imagine the level of dispute you're going to have at that stage? With the given, unions that are Given the nature of the yeah. broad constitutions that exist with unions with possible representation. What Adam Hatcher did say, though, is having a union look over an agreement and sign off it should be given a higher level of acceptance that this is something that is genuine. And I think that's true yeah. because what we, we see, one of the difficulties we have pattern bargaining where they're not genuine and you're just presented an enterprise agreement by the union, you've got to sign it. And in that way, I think what he says is wrong. But when we look at the day-to-day manufacturing environment, commonly a union will come in, they'll spend about four hours, they'll agitate, there'll be difficulties, but actually they add a lot of value towards the last part of it. And when they say it's done, it actually takes the pressure off the employer because the employer then knows they're not going to be attacked on the manner in which the voting occurred, the manner in which the dissemination of information occurred. I think he's right, and I think that's something that should be more acknowledged. But I think what we're going to see is this very polarised argument between industrial organisations for employers, unions, and it's the most unhealthy discussion we ever have because it's the same rubbish that's been going on since 1948 when the Arbitration Act came into place, and it's a nonsense. So I think what we'll see is Adam Hatcher's principles enshrined. He's a strong character. He's not a person who's easily moved away from them. And the ones he describes are about ensuring that employees have notice of what it is, notice of rights to representation, fully understand the nature of the agreement that is presented them and the impact upon them, and have a proper opportunity to vote upon it in from base of knowledge. I think it's great, and it's really nice to see that level of clarity come in. <laughs> Why don't we jump on now to Murud, because I think this is probably one of the most interesting cases we've had. And what's good about this case, New South Wales case, you've heard me criticise workers' compensation tribunals in the past for their lack of legal merit. This is a really good decision. 11A in New South Wales says in relation to psychological claims that a person can succeed in a psychological claim where their subjective understanding of actual events causes them to develop a mental illness, even though on an objective test it shouldn't, okay? And that is the same throughout Australia, okay? In every jurisdiction, if you are presented with a set of circumstances and you view those in a particular way based on what's called eggshell skull, your own vulnerabilities, then it is compensable. But remember, there are two different pathways. So this is a provisional liability argument. This is, you've got 13 weeks in which to dispute it in New South Wales to build the evidence around it. This is not about reasonable management action. No. Whereas in New South Wales, you have seven days within which to say there is a reasonable excuse, which is reasonable management action to elevate that. And that is an objective test, okay? Now, what that means is you have to demonstrate that the management process you were going through was a fair process based on the circumstance of the case and you did it in a fair way. And if you do that and someone develops a mental health issue, it's not compensable. So do you see the two lines that come out of it? What Maroon's case is fascinating because this poor soul clearly had a delusional state and the events that were referable to the mental health issue were not real. Not all of them. Some of them them were found to be. But some of them were imaginary. Yeah. And what the court said is, look, I can see why the person has responded in the manner they have. And I actually have quite, it is a lovely judgment. I actually have quite a compassion for the person who's involved, but it, the subjective response to an unreal circumstance can never be compensable. Now, can I just remind you how important it is to be accurate with facts? Because this is a case where the evidence, the presentation of evidence was also done in a really eloquent and clever way by the employer and the insurer involved. And therefore, it was very clear that some of these events did not happen. 
What happens too often in disputes around uh, liability is that people rush stuff through, they just fill out their form and they send it in and they don't do the background work. So here is a case, if you do the right thing, you do it the right way, even though you're going down the provisional liability path, which has the higher level of risk in it, you can still not have a compensable claim if the circumstances that the person alleges are not real. And can I just say, in nearly every disputed claim we deal with, not that people are lying, I don't want you to get caught up in this lying thing, but people perceive events that objectively didn't occur and didn't occur in the manner in which they said they occur. And that, that is a break from liability. And I just want you to be aware of that. So evidence collection, objective evidence collection is critical. Yeah, it's got to be the evidence of it, though. You can't just say, look, that didn't happen. Like, if it's not supported by evidence, then the claim will be accepted. Yeah. And I think we need to make that very clear. We do. Yeah. Okay, let's jump on to our next big topic, okay? Personal leave is blowing out at the moment. Yeah. And there's lots of sort of cynical rubbish about people not wanting to come to work and a whole lot of stuff. What's actually happened is we're in a highly disrupted workplace at the moment. There's a high level of uncertainty. People are much more vulnerable than damaged as a result of coming out of COVID. We're seeing a growth in psychological hazard claims in Victoria. 15% of all claims made and accepted as psychological claims at the moment, and they have four times the length of period from which they recover to a normal claim. That's massive premium impact and massive dislocation to your work. It's averaging about 9% across Australia. My point about it is this is something that's running at you and it's happening every day and we're hearing about it every day. How do I actually manage people so they do come to work because work is a place of health. When we look at what are the causative factors between a psychological claim that takes someone out of work, about 70% of what causes the claim doesn't start at work. Work is usually a healing place that people come to because they've got problems with their teenage kids, whatever, and they go, oh, my God, thank God I'm at work, okay? <laughs> but when work is a substantial contributor, it's when it tips it over the edge. Yeah. So when we talk about people taking leave, leave is a classic indicator of a psychological hazard, okay? Classic. So it's a time to reflect. But it's very important that the relationship between supervisor and that employee is held tight during this period of time because what happens is people put in, say, they're absent to the receptionist or their partner can tell, anybody can do it. But you've got to change the rules a bit and say, look, notification requires evidence under the National Employment Standard and requires notification of your direct supervisor or the supervisor the night before so that we can arrange coverage, so that we can ensure you're well and maintain our obligations under the safety legislation of doing everything that is reasonably practical to monitor your health, which means I will then follow up later in the afternoon. Now, these are just some basic tools that have enormous success in reducing absenteeism but also reminding people that they're cared about. Yeah, I think that's a big one, that it's very common to see a pattern but not looking at, you know, why is it so easy that for people to take the leave because they don't think you care. Yeah, and the longer people stay away, the more they take. And we yeah. have, it's very common for us to get cases where people have well extended their paid personal leave and often the discussions are, look, do you mind if they, is it okay if they can take annual leave or can they take long service leave? They're all highly destructive processes which ensure the person's not coming back to work. Yeah. The thing to do is to find out what are the levers that are driving this person away from work. And I come back to this issue of the most important thing is the relationship between the supervisor and their employee. Now, we're not going to dwell on it long. <laughs> I just wanted to say if you do that, the problems you're currently encountering with absenteeism will dramatically reduce. Those three simple things I talked about. 
But let's jump into one of the major topics we want to talk to you about, which is temporary absence. And I, I'm going to run through cases at a very high speed for you. Under the Fair Work Act, you're not allowed to sack someone in any 12-month period unless they have been away for a period of greater than three months and exhausted their personal leave. Okay? That's the rule. We well, think, if you can't terminate if they're temporarily absent from work because of a well, prescribed illness or injury. Yeah, good, that's yeah. wonderful. I was going to get to that. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a series of cases that talk about that, and I'm not going to go through a whole lot of them, but I want you to go probably to the end of the cases that we were going to talk about, it, which is Anson and Crown, which is the guy who wanted to see Kevin Sheedy's last game in Western Australia. He was a mad Essendon supporter. Yeah. And they said, no, look, you can't take you can't take personal leave. And he went and got a certificate from a doctor that said you can. And Crown saw him actually swing his jacket at the ground and they terminated his employment. And the court said, look, I know you've got a medical certificate, but you, you've already given notice you're going to go and you've used it as a methodology of avoiding work on a day that you were rostered to work, and they they upheld the termination. Now, you see, he was terminated. It was within a temporary absence of the period, but what he did was misconduct. And that is the heart of it because most of the issues that we deal with people who are absent for a period of time become misconduct issues, like failing to provide the appropriate evidence of not attending work and being given a direction to do it and not doing it. Now, there's a good example. Yeah, and... In fact, under the regulations, if you request the evidence and they don't provide it for you, it's not counted as a prescribed illness or injury. So the whole temporary absence doesn't even apply. That's the beautiful point of this discussion. So can you just be vigilant about the rules that sit around absence and give people appropriate directions and policies and procedures, remind people that when they are absent, you're entitled to ask for evidence of it and when people take time off, say to them, after the first two single days, for instance, which is a common thing, you are required to produce evidence in accordance with the national employment stance and that can be a statutory declaration, a medical certificate or like. Definitely ask. It's like the minimum you should do because if they don't provide it to you, that's an easy way to get around. Because temporary, temporary absence. absence. Because this is part of adverse action, okay? It's a, it's a reverse onus. You're in trouble for when you do it. There's damages. It's nasty. There's penalties. It's not a good thing to do. Now, there's another beautiful piece of case law, <laughs> which is um, Silbert and Fair Work Ombudsman Sinner, which talk about when somebody clearly has an illness, but they're back at work, so they're not absent, and therefore... Can you terminate during those times? Now, Nina and I have run this argument and, so and everyone's, back to, everyone's backed argument. away from it. But yeah. our, our view is that it is, it is a solid argument to say, given the exact the very nature of the wording that exists, if a person is present, they are not away yeah. and therefore you can terminate. Yeah, because the wording of the legislation is temporarily absent at the time, which means that if they're back at work, Technically, it doesn't pass the elements in the But you then still have to prove the inherent requirement capacity, that they're not fit for the inherent requirements, means you need medical evidence, that they're not fit now, not fit in the foreseeable future, and there are no reasonable adjustments that can be made. So it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card, but it is a really interesting argument, and it means that for someone who has extensive sick leave, like seven or eight months, there is a quicker pathway through if you're willing to take a little bit of risk. Yeah, and I also feel like there's a misunderstanding that because someone is on sick leave, then you can't touch them. But the temporary absence cases say very clearly that even if they are away and they're ill, if you've got another valid reason, like Andrew said, you're well 
in your rights to terminate anyone. So, yes, any form of two things. One is if you've commenced a disciplinary process before someone takes personal leave, when you're advised there's only a short period of leave that's going to be taken, you're not allowed to continue it. But where it becomes indefinite, you are allowed to continue the pre-illness or injury disciplinary process through things like letters and correspondence. Yeah, like accommodating the fact that they're on single. Yes, and giving extra time and making adjustments. But secondly, if people commit misconduct while they are on leave, whether it is at work or out of work, then the temporary absence provisions are not a restriction to you proceeding to discipline a person. That being said, we would still say, look, try to wait for them to come back because they're going to bring the argument and it means you have to fight it in court. If you can avoid sure the general argument, protections it's sure case, argument. then it's But remember, if it's, it looks like it's going to be indefinite, fight the ball. That's the yeah. thing I'd say. So, look, let's now jump onto the case study, which sort of agitates this and a variety of other things and was written on a plane. Off you go. <laughs> Kylie headed ICT for People, People, PTY, LTD. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> a labour hire business for white-collar industries, PP. Kylie had a young team leader who reported to her called Giles. Giles. Giles, okay. <laughs> Part of the system's development with host employees involved online payroll. Giles headed up the project but hated coming to work. He liked to work from home after COVID and resisted returning to work. His contract stated his place of work was the office and as head of the team doing creative work, it was necessary for the team to work together. Initially, Giles voted with his feet and just didn't come back. In October 2022, he attended a performance meeting where he was given direction to attend work three days a week as rostered by Kylie. He was told a failure to do so without evidence of personal leave would lead to a warning. He had over 40 days of accrued personal leave and started taking leave without a certificate every Friday. No effort was made to push for evidence. He also failed to attend work on other days and said he woke up late, his car was not working, and a myriad of other excuses, which meant he only attended work seven days of the next 40 work days. That's work days. He's <laughs> obviously working in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> I arranged another performance meeting. Giles <laughs> attended and said he felt unfairly treated. His workload was high and couldn't be done by attending work, given the 2.5 hours of travel required each day to go to and from work, and that he was feeling stressed. Kylie said all further personal leave absences must be supported by appropriate evidence and he must attend the work. Problems with cars and waking were his issues and he had to fix them. She said any further absences would lead to discipline unless there was a lawful excuse. The next day, he presented a medical certificate saying he felt stressed, anxious and was unable to work. It was for seven days, but he said he will be reviewing it and the problems of illness are ongoing beyond seven days. That's what the doctor said, I should say. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's, that's my fault. On Facebook on the last day of sick leave, Giles announced he would never go back. So the HR manager was a dog and he would get a <laughs> threat. And he knew where Kylie lived, pointing a finger at the camera, mimicking a gun. Oh, there was a video. He attended work on day eight, said he was still unwell and would go to his doctor after coming in to collect his things and take more time off. PB held a disciplinary meeting and showed Giles his Facebook posts. He didn't deny them but said they were in a high privacy setting and Kylie had no right to look at them or use them. The posts were done late at night outside of working hours and he was off sick. The HR manager said the posts were given by Kylie, by, to Kylie by a friend on Facebook. PP terminated his employment. All right. So we go to the questions. Was PP able to use the Facebook post? <laughs> Jurassic, which is a Victorian yeah, it's a really court, interesting of appeal, case. Yeah. court of appeal case, says, look, if you were to... You're not allowed to use it unless the reason for you using it behind the privacy settings is if you were to advise the person that they may remove it. That's a, that's the effect. Yeah. Of, and that's yeah. A, in this example, 
and it was necessary in order to perform the investigation into the misconduct. But at the first instance, they say, yeah, it's technically protected by privacy. Yeah. So as an employee, you need to be aware of that. It's not like free reign. To just no. So at that stage, you actually create emails place. between yourself saying, look, if we do raise this, what's the likelihood of it? You, know, you set all that yeah. stuff up. Okay? Yeah. Just remember internally, you've got to create your evidence. Was the out-of-work behaviour a proper basis for termination? This is Rose and yeah. <laughs> and it's... Hunt and Camilla and a whole series of cases which sets up three bases for termination. But can I just say, out-of-work behaviour that threatens the welfare of somebody in work is inconsistent with the nature of continuing employment and yeah. it is serious misconduct. So the answer is yes. yes. So let's get to the, the tough one. Given the medical certificate, ongoing illness being known, although he did not did attend work, could Giles say the termination breached temporary absence provisions, especially if the basis was he confirmed he was never going to be fit to return to work not the out-of-work misconduct. So to decipher the question, <laughs> it's, if they said you're being fired because you're never going to be able to return to work, yeah. not the misconduct. Yeah, so... Let's start with the misconduct for fun. If, yeah. if they do for the misconduct, it's fine. Yeah, because it's clearly not for the absence. Yes. But if it's not, the fact that he's at work would be using the novel argument. It would be. Yeah, that and fact that he's not temporary absent at the time of distance or... And let's make it even harder. Let's say that he has just called in, he's not at work, but he's not covered by any medical evidence and doesn't provide medical evidence for absence that day. He still wouldn't be covered by the temporary absence provision. Yes, but there are cases that say that it's supposed to be provided within 24 hours, but the court has the discretion That's to cork extend and it. That's cork and yeah. Cops, yeah. And so... If he never provides it, then you're in the clear. But like, Cox was four weeks late, for instance, yes. and they said, look, that's okay. We right after termination yeah. as well. Yeah. So I think, look, potentially it could be fired under that, but it's still tenuous because what's to stop him from turning around tomorrow and being like, here's well, my medical And can I just say you can't do it? And here's the one reason, because the evidence is absolutely clear from a series of cases around about 10 to 12 years old that if you're proceeding on the base of the inherent requirements, You've got to have objective evidence of a health professional that provides the basis of saying the person is not fit for work. Yeah. Now will not be fit in the future in which there are no reasonable adjustments. So the fact that someone says in a fit of anger, I'm never coming back to yeah. work, is not evidence that you can properly rely on. It's evidence that can start an inquiry. Yes. But it's not evidence that you can properly rely on to say a person is not fit for the inherent requirements. So if you did it on that basis, you'd fail at every Every way. You'd fail the common law test, you'd fail the temporary absence test. Yeah. So this is our discussion that we've had about it. There are ways through this. You can be cunning like Nina and yeah. I are. There's an That's argument you could run. <laughs> but it's a dumb argument to run because you've got a reverse onus. Yes. And you're in court when you're running the argument. You're, it's the exchange of pleadings that you're running that argument. Yeah. I think also he wasn't away for very long. It was... A week at Seven this days, point. Yeah. So yeah. there's no reasonable basis you can make that determination he could never come back. No, no, there's not. And I, for me, the important thing that comes out of this is we often deal with difficult people, okay? We're inclined to rush towards dealing with difficult people. Yeah. And we've given you a couple of cases today where they dealt with a difficult person. They stood back and went, no, we're going to take the time and we're going to do it well. My father had a saying, which is, um, your best of those you hate. <laughs> Stay close and be good. Don't try and be reckless in getting somebody out of an organisation and just slow down. Mm-hmm. Just slow down and go, all right, the person's done this. The person's gone to Facebook. The real issue is their misconduct. A yeah. threat to another person, given O'Keefe's case and a series of old cases, is a threat that lives within the workplace and is utterly inconsistent with someone's continuation of their work. Yep. And on those circumstances, it's the primary test in Rose and Telstra. 
it is serious misconduct because it creates an imminent and immediate risk to the health and well-being of somebody, yep. Regulation 107. You're there. Don't get caught up with the other noise where you think, oh, I could sneak this and get, oh, you never fit. You've got the right argument. Yeah. Go for Use the, right. the easy path. Yeah. But the problem is lots of people don't. No, because they get fixated on how annoyed they are and they want to do something to hurt the other person, but it just burns you in the end, so it's not worth it. Can I just say next week we're going to deal with recklessness by a director. Okay. There was a case that came out yesterday, hot off the presses, hot, that, off, the hot off the presses, where a director actually tried to resist a fine around reckless endangerment and, and a term of imprisonment and where they found his behaviour, and I, I want to go through it, I'm not going to spoil it for next week, but they go through his behaviour and I think it's a real eye-opener for officers. Can I just say that? It is a real eye-opener for officers. What is recklessness under the safety legislation? That's our topic next week. I feel like there's a lot of spotlight on officers recently. So well, there is. more of a focus by the regulators. Yeah, well, we've, well, look at the plant case that we saw yeah. just recently where a guy, Fair Work Ombudsman, had a go and he said all these terrible things yeah. and ended up with actually relatively minor penalties. No more spoilers, Andrew. Save it for next week. Okay, like, yes. Yeah. Anyway, like, next tune week. Tune in next week. For we want to see some thumbs up, okay? Yeah. Some thumbs up. All right. See Thanks you later. Bye-bye. Bye.